It's raw, it's real, it's unkempt. A podcast for founders, investors, and entrepreneurs hosted by me, Queensland's chief entrepreneur, Leanne Kemp. And this week, I talked to Jamie Wilson, who's the founder of CryptoLock Technologies. He's been recognized by Forbes as one of the 20 best cybersecurity startups to watch in 2020. Plus, I'll explain why some founders fail at being the CEO. Leanne Splaining in its finest. Welcome, Jamie. It's great to have you on Unkempt. I really feel like this episode is going to get a bit nerdy, a bit quirky, and a bit crypto-like. Let's see how we spin the tables today. The background to your company is really interesting. You're an ISO-accredited company, 27001, which, of course, is a very difficult process to undertake. So let's unfold those pages. And more importantly, you are a champion chief entrepreneur company sitting right here in Queensland in the heart of Brisbane. You've developed a highly secured platform where authenticity and the integrity of documents can be guaranteed. Both your company and my company began working in the blockchain space and we're interested in how to authenticate and ensure the integrity of valuable items. In my case, it's diamonds and in yours, it's crucial life documents like wills and insurance policies. Your humble beginnings, 2010, I think you sparked the moment in my mind. I too had a life-changing event where I took a backpack and wandered through the mountains of Nepal in Annapurna 1 and Annapurna 2 and realized in that moment that I wanted to make a significant difference. Um, And Everledger was born. But tell me about that moment in 2010, which was the sort of fire spark that then began the change and now what is known as the 20 best cybersecurity startups to watch. G'day, Leanne, and thanks for the invite. Yeah, it's been an interesting journey. Prior to um, getting into cybersecurity, I was an accountant, um, mainly focusing on large end of town. And I've always had the privilege of working with great entrepreneurs um, with developing, you know, recycling plants, developments, um, a wide selection of, um, um, build, uh, you know, building companies. Um, for me, my journey started when I lost my father to pancreatic cancer, which was in 2010. Um, and during that stage, it was left to me being the oldest son of a big family to find the will, the life insurance superannuation. Because at that time, no, you don't think like you're here, you are, you've got your father in, um, you know, terminal with cancer in a, you know, in a bed. And then all of a sudden, there's no money coming through to the home. And that was the real trigger. And I thought, you know what, what would happen if I dropped dead? Would my two children get what they're entitled to? And I thought, wow, here I am doing a whole lot of strategy work for my clients as an accountant. They're sitting in a filing cabinet. Now, what happens? How how the hell are they going to get that information? And I thought, this is crazy. So that was the light bulb moment where I thought there's got to be a better solution. Why isn't there a cryptographic solution out there, a vault in the cloud that only you have access to? So zero knowledge, no cloud provider can access your information and run algorithms and try to track you back and things like that. Um, and I couldn't find one. So we built it here with all the talent in Brisbane and nothing has been done offshore. There's two famous sayings, of course, and one of them is there's no certainty in the world other than deaths and taxes. And so you're exactly right. You've hit a critical need for everyone at some point in their life and in the family journey. The ISO accreditation is often something that is not necessarily at the forefront of entrepreneurs when starting a business. And certainly Everledger went through our ISO accreditation in 2016 
it was very early in our process run and our growth journey. Talk a little bit about not only how and you went around building the ISO accreditation, but what does it mean to a company like yours for the importance of documents that you're storing and that engagement piece around the future road mapping of, uh, of government interactions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for us, I think it's a critical 101 when you are going out with a cybersecurity, you're holding sensitive data, you're a trust organisation, you give authority, um, authenticity and integrity, that you need to put your hand on your heart and say, you, we follow the best practices and policies on a global stage. It is a huge investment. It's like when we're going for the patents in the early day. It's sort of like, really, do we have to spend that sort of money when all you want to do is develop the product to get out to the world? I think in a world that we live in today, I think it gives a whole lot of comfortability. Um, and I think on a global stage, when you can stand out from a lot of players and say, you know what, we're also um, certified, we do have the best policies and practices within the organisation to drive it forward. I think that there is priceless. So as a user of the platform and mm. as a citizen myself, what can I do, not just to necessarily rely upon the accreditation of ISO, but um, what can I do to help preserve and ensure my own privacy and, and in fact, know the questions to ask to underpin security and authenticity? So CryptoLock was the name that I gave the technology back in 2012. Prior to that, it was known as Your Digital File, which was a solution. Um, and that I've always kept very close to me, which is YDF.ai. And I wanted to ensure no matter what walk of life that all users would be able to save their sensitive data and information. And that's available to you today to be able to save your information. The benefit of it is that it has nominees. So in the event of a trigger event, such as um, death, for example, there's a, you can actually leave files or folders to individuals um, as many nominees as you wish, or remove uh, or revoke access at any stage. Um, because of the system and, and the point of difference that we've done with our key management is that every file has its own unique encryption. So I flip the security model and put the user back in control of their cloud. And because we are zero knowledge, so as a cloud provider, we have zero knowledge to your information. But the problem is with encryption is once you lose access, you never regain access. So what I've done is I've got um, a legal organisation involved. So it's governed by the Queensland Law Society. So we work together. So if a user loses access to their, to their file, they can regain access between the escrow and also the cloud provider being YDF in this case, and away you go. Should a death happen, and as long as you've actually listed your nominees, then that information would be passed down, but only what you give them access to. So, for example, um, if you had a love letter, you know, back from when you're 18 and you never wanted your partner to find out that, you know, you've kept this information, they'll never know. Um, however, because of the trust element that we've actually got in the system, I needed to ensure that it would stand up in court, and that's what we do. I think I've got enough love letters to rewrap the lollies of fantails, uh, I would imagine. <laughs> but who would know what would be written in those words, to be honest with you? So I'm glad there is Make such the a most thing. Of it. <laughs> the uh, cryptographic sequencing that you speak about in Zero Knowledge Proof was also spoken about in a recent podcast with Dr. Anthony Finkelstein from, of course, the Turing Institute. 
let's, for those that are super nerdy on the call, talk yep. a little bit further about what that actually means because I too am a religious believer of the movement around this type of sequencing. Absolutely. Okay, so zero knowledge means that the cloud provider where you store your information has zero knowledge and has no cannot turn around and access that data and information. So the problem that we've seen, we're, we're entering a new decade, and the new decade is owning your own privacy, owning your own data. We don't want people to turn around and write algorithms, be able to, you know, sales pitch to us, um, all the research and, and um, development of their new solutions out in the world. So this part of the world, you know, we know that data is more valuable than oil on a global stage. Um, and that's where we are putting you back in control of your data. By doing so, we can't turn around and write algorithms over top of your information, be able to on-sell it. For me, I'm a very private person. I don't want people to know what I have, what I sell, you know, whatever I do in the market. However, in the event that I drop dead, I want to make sure my two boys are looked after. So I suppose, you know, when you've got a lot of consumers in the world, but now we're creeping into organisations, that data we know from a cyber criminal is that the standard encryption doesn't work. If it worked, we wouldn't have the increase in cyber warfare that we see today. So we stop that. We're just in the process of actually doing a live demo where we'll actually have a, la- uh, a laptop. We would turn around and use a USB. We will inject it with ransomware, malicious malware, and we'll show you how YDF, so using CryptoLock technology, we can turn around and um, recover that information just by a click of a button. So, for example, like Garmin is in a world of pain trying to get all their data and information back. Um, we've seen Toll as well. Do you know the first time they got hit, then they thought, no, we're not going to pay the ransomware. I was actually standing in a conference over in Japan in Tokyo, and they asked me my advice. I said, I'd be paying it. I said, at the end of the day, you have a weakness in your house, and if you turn around and think that you're going to recover, you're not because they'll come back and hit you. Now, I didn't feel, I felt terrible by mentioning it and I thought I should be careful what I say. But guess what happened? Once again this year, they went and got hit again. It's certainly drinking a cup of concrete moment to many leaders in the world around cyber and cyber security. And what stands in the middle of this is policy around privacy. You know, it's both a porcupine that has pines when it, of course, looks to be threatened and it's a skunk that's cute to cuddle, but, geez, it stinks. So tell us a little bit about your involvement or even the vision that you hold um, around how we can engage in a far more deliberate way with governments for them to understand. I mean, we have the Australian government making significant comments about let's put in back doors to all of our data providers, which to me seems um, uh, near-term suicide. And totally agree. And I had one of the government um, reach out to me to get my thoughts on the encryption bill going through. And I said to him, well, it doesn't affect us. I said, but I'd be very careful in doing that encryption bill and creating back holes already. I mean, we understand that there's a whole lot of issues on a global stage, let alone putting a tap or being able to take that information and open up another hole for the cyber criminals to come into it. Yeah. Now, I love asking this question to all of the guests, and that is, I'm giving you a crystal ball, a moment upon which you can either predict into the future um, within your own area of expertise, um, or even more generally, but what does 2030 look like for you, 2050 and beyond, or the crystal ball, look backwards? What would you have done differently if you had the moment to relive it? 
If I uh, to relive it, well, it's probably it wouldn't change because I wouldn't ever be got into IT without Dad passing away. I think it's like COVID right now. We need to adopt and change the way we do things, and and you know, opportunities are going to come through COVID as well. Um, looking to twenty thirty, I think you know, um, security is definitely going to be at the forefront. I think it's well and truly lagged behind. We understand by Senate reports and things like that coming out of government that government does not do it well. Um, what I find is that, um, you know, we really need to be focusing on the core of the information because we know that cyber criminals are always a step in front. Um, when they can turn around and have a laptop, minimal cost around the world, be able to penetrate and understand, you know, um, gain access to these um, files of, you know, especially privacy, driver's license and, and passports, that they can set up bank accounts and be able to send this money offshore and never be able to regain access to it. I think um, government really needs to um, be more open-minded and work with private industry into how's the best way to be able to tackle it moving forward. I certainly recognise what you're building is critical and essential service, whether that be in the midst of COVID or in that critical life moment and event. And so I want to thank you for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure and a divine moment. And we are on the pathway towards a pretty prosperous future when we think about the national blockchain roadmap strategy that's been built out at a federal level now. And I can put my arms around uh, many blockchain and crypto companies that are here in Australia that are well recognized globally. And sometimes it just takes a moment to look in the mirror to understand that the reason why. So yet again, you are walking the talk as a great Queensland entrepreneur and it's been my divine pleasure today to get inside that little bit of your sparkly eyes and the brain's trust that you hold between those ears. So thank you for joining. Thank you, Leanne. Now let me, Leanne, explain you. Founder failure. If all you do is read TechCrunch or watch reruns of The Social Network, it can be easy to think that a startup success is a linear progression from idea to riches. So easy, right? (laughs) Not really. It's actually much harder than it appears, and all founders go through periods where it seems like everything's about to come crashing down. Fear of failure stalks the world of entrepreneurship, from losing key clients to running out of money. And this week, I've been pondering founder failure. It is a big topic, one that makes me cringe a little bit. I know even the most confident people will surely have a nagging little voice tucked right away in the back of our minds that says, what if? What if I don't make it? What if I'm not good enough? What if all this is a waste of time? Well, here's the good news. It's actually quite normal to have that voice. And for entrepreneurs, courage is not the absence of fear, but the ability to persist in spite of it. And in fact, like most people, I don't like losing and I certainly don't like failing. What's the best way to handle failure? Well, feel the pain. That's right. Instead of simply recalling past mistakes and thinking about how to prevent them, a recent study found that going through the emotional pain of failing is the best approach for correcting your mistakes and preventing failures at a later time. But the trick is to not let failure get the better of you. When I was a teenager, I was a pretty good athlete, even if I say so myself. And I had this one moment that I thought it was my big chance, that make or break, when I could have been on the top of the podium, but instead I muffed it up, crashing out. Now, I'm not saying that you need to have a moment of an implosion to truly understand the nature of failure. 
And if I'd had my time over again, well, let's just say there'd be a few more medals in my trophy cabinet today. But now I'm a little older, a little wiser, and I can look back and consider that moment as one of the greatest lessons in life. In fact, one thing that has taught me, failure isn't the worst thing in the world. So ask yourself in the moment, is this a healthy fail and are you still growing as a human? If so, this difficult situation may be the best formative thing that's ever happened. Shift your mental conversation from failing to things being discovered in the process. Ask yourself, what are you learning? Failure can be famously rewarding for all kinds of regions that aren't financial. A healthy fail has identified benefits you can explore and know why you're persisting. Even write them down and be sure to check in. You can tell a healthy failing by how excited you are about the process and the learnings, even in the face of little functional progress. I meet a lot of first-time founders and one of the questions they ask me is this, when do I give it all up and will I be a failure if I walk away? And most of the time they ask it really nervously. It's actually like they're asking permission to give up, permission to fail. Well, listeners, I've been around a while now, so let me tell you a few things I've learned about failure. Well, first of all, it's universal. At some point, somewhere, we all fail. Hopefully, it won't be the kind of fail that is so epic that you'll land yourself in jail or worse, but you're human. We all get it wrong sometimes, and I say failure gets better with practice. Now, secondly, the way you fail is important. You can fail and throw a tantrum or blame others, or you can fail with dignity and maturity, and it's a choice, so choose wisely. Now, thirdly, is it a functional fail? I bet you haven't heard functional fail before, but most entrepreneurs give up only when forced to, often when the money runs out and they have to go get a real job. This functional fail isn't anything to be afraid of. It's a clean end. To help get yourself to a clean end, if needed, try not to take on too much debt or equity. There should be reasonable financial risks relative to any business along the way, but also have a point at which you're going to stop the bleed on your own personal financial stability. I have a friend, let's call her Jenny. She counseled me to save a little bit of money back when I launched my very first business. Rather than the all cash into the retirement approach that I had when I was excited, she was right. You can set a number you won't go below and call an end to it. Remember, set healthy boundaries on what you allow your business to do to your life and health. And finally, it's not about the failure itself. It's about what you do in the moment and afterwards. So make sure you analyze and process the failure. Don't fail in the same way twice. It's not fun. On a serious note, if you're going through a hard time right now with your business, take time to listen and to talk to other founders. You'll see that you are not alone. And if you persist, you might just end up with a success story that you can tell your kids about one day. There's a lot written about the glory of failing, but that's rubbish. Winning is way more fun. So since that's true, and since you're a driven, persistent entrepreneur who runs at cliffs, it can be tough to know when to quit. For founders, the struggle is a natural part of your reality. For those times when it starts to feel overwhelming, I hope today gave you some frames that might help. And remember, if you didn't dream big, you wouldn't be changing the world. So everyone, be kind to yourself. And what are you waiting for? Get out there and fail wisely.
Unkempt. It's hosted by me, Leanne Kemp, and produced by the Office of Queensland Chief Entrepreneur and our Mike and mates at the Content Division. Hey, you like what you hear? Well, head over to your podcast platform of choice and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. For more tips, why don't you visit chiefentrepreneur.qld.gov.au. Thanks for listening.